Well, good morning, everyone. If we haven't met yet, my name's John. I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary, and I'm delighted to be in Thornton today. My family and I normally worship at the Boulder campus, and I teach every week for Calvary Online. And we gave Zach the week off, so he asked me to come uh, and teach this morning, which I'm happy to do. It's really great to be a part of a team here at Calvary. I'm thankful for the team uh, that leads here, for Zach and for Justin and for Matthew and Brody and Dakota and the whole team that does such an excellent job. And I'm thankful for each of you that you're here as a part of the Thornton campus, and we love what's happening here. It's so cool to see new faces and new people who are joining Thornton and the membership class that we had just a couple weeks ago. It's awesome. Our teaching team gets together every week to study the text that we're teaching together at all of our campuses and online and sort of grapples with uh, some of the difficulties in Hebrews and what's ahead of us and um, wrestles together. And it's a joy to be able to work together with a great team of teachers who teach in Boulder and Erie and Thornton and online. The series that we're in, in the book of Hebrews, is called Greater Than. Because that's, that's the theme of the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is greater than anything we could ever face, any problem we might face in our life, and greater than anyone we could imagine. We've seen some of the descriptions of Jesus' greatness over so many amazing things. The book of Hebrews begins by saying that Jesus is greater even than the Old Testament prophets. That Jesus is greater than this amazing leader in Old Testament history named Moses. That Jesus is greater even than angels. And if we live our lives that way, and that's our prayer for each of us as we study Hebrews, is that we would be the kind of people who live our life based on the reality that Jesus is superior, greater than any problem we might face, greater than anyone we can imagine. If we live our lives that way, we will be defined by a characteristic that has defined Christians from the beginning. Hope. We left off last week in verses 11 and 12 of Hebrews chapter 6, which say, We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and inheritance and patience, excuse me, inherit the promises. Hope is one of the pillars of the Christian life. It's like one of the three legs of the stool that upholds the Christian. It's one of three key values that the Apostle Paul returns to all the time in the letters that he wrote. Faith, love, and hope. Hope is kind of a universal desire that people have. It's not just something that Christians desire. And it's more than just a Christian quality. It's something that everyone longs for. I mean, who knows how many books have been written or seminars have been taught or advice has been given about how to increase hope in someone's life. President Obama's campaign slogan from many years ago was defined by this one word, hope. And when we think about hope, we probably think about it mostly as an attitude or a feeling. The problem with that is then hope can sort of ebb and flow, go up and down based on our life circumstance. So if our grades are good or if the stock market is up, then we're feeling hopeful. But if the project at work is delayed 
or there's problems, or there's a market downturn, then what? Are we feeling less hopeful? Business leaders, maybe you've heard this, will often tell their teams that hope is not a strategy. Military leaders do the same thing. I mean, if you're gathered around a boardroom and you're looking at some dire financial forecasts, it's not really a good idea to say, well, let's just hope it gets better next quarter. That's not a very strategic way to lead. And similarly, if you're a military leader and the enemy has all of your troops cornered, you can't just say, well, we're just going to hope for the best. That's not a strategy. However, in the life of the Christian, when hope is rooted in reality, not some sort of wish casting, which hope often is, especially if it's just an attitude or a feeling, but if hope is rooted in something real, then it's one thing that ought to set Christians apart in the world. Because hope is for the Christian, not wishing that something unlikely could happen, but it's knowing confidently that something will occur. And according to our text today, verses 13 through 20 of Hebrews chapter 6, our hope as Christians is rooted in three things. First, the promises of God. Second, the character of God. And third, the Son of God. So let's start with the promises of God. In verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 6, which says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Abraham is one of the most important Old Testament figures. He's mentioned several times in the book of Hebrews. He is like the founding father of the Jewish people. We're going to spend a little time tracing the historical account of the life of Abraham. So if you want to follow along, keep a finger here in Hebrews 6 and turn left in your Bible with me to Genesis chapter 12, which is the first book in the Bible. And we're going to look at several chapters of Genesis that explain the story of Abraham and this idea of a promise that he obtained. So Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 begins, and by the way, at this point in his story, Abraham's name is Abram, and God appears seemingly out of nowhere to him in Genesis chapter 12 and says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." And in this moment, what's known as the Abrahamic covenant, God makes a threefold promise to Abraham. First, he says, Abraham, I will give you a great name. And then he says, from you will come a great nation. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So there's a great name. From you will come a great nation. And in you, all nations will be blessed, Abram. That's quite a promise to make to a person especially when you consider that when this promise was made, Abram was 75 years old. 
His wife, who at this point is named Sarai, but will be named Sarah. Her name will be changed, just like Abram's will be changed to Abraham. Sarai's 65 years old, and they are without children. And God says to them, I will make of you a great nation, and you don't have any kids. How is that possible? So over the course of the next 10 chapters in Genesis, which spans about 25 years of Abram's life, God reaffirms this promise to him, this covenant, many times. He changes Abram's name to Abraham. And in chapter 21 of Genesis, in verses 1 through 3, you can turn with me there. It says, The Lord visited Sarah, Abraham's wife, as he had said, And the Lord said to Sarah, as he had promised, and Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah born to him, Isaac. So this is 25 years after that initial promise in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham is now 100 years old. Sarah, his wife, is 90 I mean, can you even imagine how joyful they must have been to welcome this baby Isaac into the world at their old age? And what it must have been like over those 25 years, if you know the story, there were ups and downs in their commitment to God and his promise. But they clung to this hope in the promise that God had made to them, that God would give them a son. And here it happens. At the ripe old age of 100 and 90. And so as joyful as it must have been to welcome Isaac into the world in their old age, how disorienting would it have been when in Genesis chapter 22 it says in verses in beginning in verse 1, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, "Here I am." And God said, "Take your son your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt sacrifice on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. In one of the most extraordinary accounts in Scripture, Abraham and Isaac travel three days to the land of Moriah, to this mountain that God had called them to go to, And they build an altar of sacrifice, and Isaac lays there. And just as Abraham is ready to slay him, God stays his hand and and says later in Genesis 22, verses 12 through 13, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And Isaac lives. And the promise of a great nation coming through Abraham lives on. Now, there's so much more to discover about this event that happens between Abraham and Isaac, and our author in Hebrews chapter 11 unpacks it in detail and explains how Abraham was able to trust God in the midst of it and what it means and what he believed about God. 
But because of Abraham's unwavering belief and faith in God in this extraordinary moment, God once again reaffirmed his covenantal promise to Abraham and to his family. And he does it this time with an oath in verses 16 through 18 of chapter 22, where God says, By myself I have sworn, declared the Lord, because you have done this, and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So let's tease this out. Did God keep his promise to Abraham? Was God's word to him good? So remember, there were three aspects to the promise that God made to Abraham. First, that he would give him a great name. Okay, that promise made to Abraham was 4,000 years ago. Here we are today in Thornton, Colorado, talking about this man, Abraham, and upholding him as an example of great faith and belief in God. Did God keep his promise to Abraham to make him a great name, give him a great name? Absolutely. I mean, three of the major world religions in the world look to Abraham as their founding father. Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. That's the majority of people in the earth who look to and revere Abraham as an example of faith. Okay, great name. God kept his promise there. How about great nation? Did a great nation come from Abraham? Absolutely. I mean, the fact that the Jewish people have been sustained for 4,000 years through countless empires who have tried to eliminate them from the earth under nearly constant threat by enemies, and God has sustained them, and they continue today. A, A large nation. And of course, there's a spiritual aspect to this promise, too, that all of us who call on the name of the Lord Jesus would consider ourselves to be a holy nation a part of the family of God that is a part of this nation that God promised to Abraham. Okay, and how about the third part of the promise? That in you, Abraham, all families of the earth will be blessed. All nations will receive a blessing because of you, Abraham. So the Apostle Paul explains for us in Genesis chapter 3 that this promise made to Abraham and his offspring was not made to offsprings, plural, meaning many, but to one offspring. That in your offspring, all families of the earth will be blessed. Who is the one offspring that Paul is saying this promise mentions? Jesus Christ. That in you, Abraham, all families of the earth will be blessed. In your offspring, there will come from you a seed who will bless all nations. And that is the ultimate fulfillment to the covenantal promise made to Abraham. The ultimate fulfillment of God's word to people that in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, all nations, all people may find blessing because of salvation, which is found in Jesus Christ alone. So can we live with hope with that reality? Can we have hope in God's word because of his promises to us? 
If we receive it and believe it and trust it and obey it, we can have hope because of God's promise. No matter what circumstance we find ourselves in, God makes a promise to us. And God speaks to us today through his word, through the promises that he shares with us in scripture. Most specifically promising that we can receive the blessing of salvation that's found in his son, his only son, Jesus Christ. What are some of the promises that you trust in in scripture? Anybody want to talk in church and share a promise that you trust in from God's word? Yes. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you know how many times that's repeated in the scriptures? Throughout the Old and New Testament, the promise of God that he will never leave you nor forsake you. No matter how alone we may feel, no matter how abandoned we might be by friends or even family or feel alone in the world, God will never leave us nor forsake us. That's a beautiful promise. Any others that anyone trusts in? I have some. How about his steadfast love endures forever? His love never ceases. It never comes to an end. How about the Lord your God is with you wherever you go? In Joshua 21 verse 45 it says, Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord has made to the house of Israel have failed. All have come to pass. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's a promise of the Lord Jesus. I will give you rest. Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it to the full. Jesus promised, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. Who's that? the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever. I will give you another helper to be with you forever. Acts chapter 1 tells us that Jesus will come in the same way again. In the same way that he ascended into heaven, he will return to us. That's a promise of God. How about there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But God is faithful. God is unwaveringly faithful. Hebrews 4, chapter, or verse 16, we read this just a couple weeks ago. Let us then with confidence... Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in our time of need. There are so many beautiful promises that are offered to us in the scripture that God has promised to us. And so therefore, as followers of Jesus, our hope is placed in the promises of God. And if we have any doubt about whether or not that's a good place To put our hope, our hope is confirmed by the character of God. Back to Hebrews chapter 6. Hopefully you kept an appendage there so you can find it. 
Hebrews is towards the end of the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 6. And we'll be in verses 16 through 18 now, which says, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. It's kind of surprising that God decided to make an oath in addition to his promise, isn't it? Like, doesn't that seem unnecessary? If, if God's promise is true and unfailing, why would God feel the need to make an oath? It's because he desired to show to us, to the heirs of the promise, more convincingly the unchangeable character of his purpose. He wanted humans to know, to be convinced that his promises were unwavering. And so he did something that all humans of all ages at all times in history have done. He makes an oath. Kids make oaths all the time. I'll meet you at the playground after school. Do you swear? I swear. And then they'll double down and say, but do you pinky swear? I pinky swear, they say. I mean, when we're about to share something confidential with another person, we might say, I need to tell you something, but will you please swear not to tell anybody else? If we testify in a court of law, we we place our hand on a Bible, raise our right hand and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Similarly, when people take an oath of office and step into certain political roles, they take an oath there. They swear to uphold the rules and responsibilities of the office that they find themselves in. An oath is a universal way throughout history that humans have made legally binding agreements. And God making this oath for us is just an example of his character. It helps us understand more deeply who God is and what he is like. And I think the fact that God makes an oath demonstrates to us that God is humble. Our God is one who who comes down from heaven onto our level. There's a theological word that we use that is kind of misunderstood because of the way we use it in our day. But this is called that God condescends to us. Not the negative, critical way that we understand when someone says, that guy's so condescending, I can't can't stand being around him. But the positive way of understanding someone who condescends to another person is that they're simply willing to go from their superior state and meet with someone who is inferior to them, but they do so willingly. It's like when an adult meets a child and gets down on their knees to see them at eye level. And it gives dignity and worth to the child that they're speaking to. It's like if a superior officer in the military, like the the four-star general, comes and speaks to an enlisted person and asks for their opinion, how things are going. I don't know if any of you ever saw that show, Undercover Boss, where the CEO would like dress up in a costume and then she would go work on the front lines of the business and no one would have any idea who she was and she'd get to meet people who were inferior to her positionally. But so often in that show, they, um, 
The CEO would treat these people with such dignity and respect and hear about their lives and what was happening in their world and feel compassion for them because they had trouble at home and she might provide for them in a very unique way. That is an example of condescension in a positive way. And this is what God is doing here, is he is condescending to humans by making an oath so that we would understand that God has doubled down on his promise, that it is secure, that we can have hope in it. God has condescended in so many ways to humanity, has demonstrated his humility forever. The fact that God would even reveal himself to us and speak to us in a way that we could understand, communicate to us so that we might grasp who he is, this glorious and incomprehensibly wonderful being has condescended to us, has demonstrated his humility to us. The fact that Jesus was born as a baby. What an example of humility that God himself would be born as a baby. Not to pomp and circumstance, but in a simple and humble manger. That Jesus would live a real human life and die an inglorious death. Because Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held onto, but he humbled himself. He condescended himself to human beings so that we might live forever. And in God making an oath to humans, he demonstrates his humility so that we might be, oh, here we go. The Lord is calling. Let me just uh, mute that. This is who our God is, that he's willing to go to extraordinarily humiliating lengths on our behalf. Even here in our text, willing to make an oath so that we would be convinced and assured of his unchangeable character. What else do we learn about God's character from these verses? Verse 18 says that God cannot lie. Do you see that? Do we have verse 18 up there? There we go. In which it is impossible for God to lie. That's one of the problems we face in the world with promises or oaths. I mean, how many promises do you know of that have been broken? How many political leaders have made vast promises that they don't follow up on? It even seems today that people will go against the oath of office that they've taken, that it's, it's kind of a joke. But with God, it is impossible for him to lie. That's a part of his character. Because God is a truth teller. There is only truth in him. It's who he is. The Old Testament book of Numbers, chapter 23 and verse 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie. He is unlike humans. He cannot lie. It goes on, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Not only is it impossible for God to lie, but his character is unchangeable. Just as it says in Numbers that he is not a man that he should change his mind, verse 17 of Hebrews chapter 6 God, it says that God's character is unchangeable. God doesn't evolve or mature. He doesn't regress or get tired. He is unchanging. And the unchangeable character of God leads to an unshakable hope in the life of a Christian. So our hope is placed in the promises of God. 
confirmed by the character of God and secured through the Son of God. Look at verses 19 and 20 of Hebrews 6. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is ultimately how God's promise to Abraham finds its fulfillment and how our hope is secured through the work of our Savior, Jesus. And our secure hope is described by our author first as an anchor. This was a common symbol for early Christians, an anchor which holds a boat in place and keeps it from drifting and holds it steady during a storm. And this anchor is sure and steadfast. Just as God's character is unchangeable, our hope is immovable. It's like an anchor securely holding us. And where is this anchor located? In the inner place behind the curtain. This is a reference to the earthly tabernacle or temple, part of the Old Testament tradition, where once a year, the high priest would enter through a curtain to the inner place known as the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God dwelt on the earth. And the high priest would enter there once a year to make a sacrifice on behalf of himself and on behalf of the people to atone for their collective sin. And that's where our hope resides, in the presence of God, in the inner place behind the curtain, not now in an earthly place, but in heaven, in God's eternal presence. Why, why there? Because Jesus has gone first before us as our forerunner. And he has secured our salvation, our hope in God's presence. And this word forerunner, in our first century context, would most likely have referred to a small boat that went before a larger boat when they were coming into harbor. And if there was a storm and the storm was too tumultuous for the large boat to make its way into the harbor, this little boat would go before as a forerunner, carrying the anchor into the safety and security of the harbor and drop the anchor there so that the larger boat could wait out the storm until the sea was calm and come into the safety and security of the harbor where the anchor had been all along. Notice, too, what exactly is anchored in the presence of God. It's our souls. This is why that promise of God can be made to all people, all nations, because this is, this is a spiritual promise that God made to Abraham, that God made to his descendants. And so it matters that as Abraham held fast to the hope that God had promised that he would have a son and that it was fulfilled, that promise that was made 4,000 years ago matters to us today. Because when God promised to Abraham that Isaac would be born, it meant that someday Isaac's son Jacob would be born. And that someday Jacob's son Judah would be born. And many, many years later, one of Jacob's descendants, David, the great king of Israel, would be born. And many, many, many years later, 
one of David's descendants, Mary would be born. So that Jesus would be born. So that Jesus would die. So that you and I might be born again by the offer of salvation that is promised and secured through the Son of God. The one who now today sits at the right hand of the throne of God, reigning and ruling and offering still today that we can cling to this promise that God will save us, that God has provided a way, and it's through His Son, Jesus. I wonder if your hope is secured in Him. If you're not sure about that, today would be the day to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I believe in the promise that that has been made about you. That all who believe would not perish but have everlasting life in you. And I trust you and I place my hope in you. And if you have, here's what Jesus says to you. In John chapter 14, verses 2 to 3. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. My friends, our hope is placed in the promises of God, confirmed by the character of God and secured through the Son of God. Let's be a people who are defined and characterized by hope. Hope that is rooted in these realities of the unwavering promises of God, of the unchanging character of God, and the spectacularly loving Son of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, We give you praise and worship for who you are and what you have done, what you have accomplished on our behalf, that you have secured for us a sure and steadfast anchor of our souls, which if we have placed our faith in you, is today secured in the presence of God. I pray for my friends here today that they would have hope that is steady, unwavering, fixed in you, Jesus Christ, because of your unchanging love for us. We bless you, God, for your promises. We thank you, God, for your unchanging character. And we worship you because of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.